Father. Thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you that its power is to renew us. It's like food. You call it milk, meat, honey, bread. It sustains our soul. It's the seed that you use, the imperishable seed, to bring about a new birth. And it is the word that is alive, sharper than a two-edged sword. And so we come and we submit ourselves to the authority of it because we know it comes from your hand. We pray for our campuses. Thank you for what you're doing in Bluffton and Hilton Head. And we pray for the church at Graniteville that as they invite people out, that you'd raise up people in that community, some who need to know the same forgiveness we have found. Others who have already met you and they need a church where they can grow and invite their friends to. So put your hand on that campus and put your hand on this service. Father, I come with a deep sense of need. Thank you that in my weakness, you promise to give strength, that your grace is sufficient. And so I ask that the Spirit of God would come and fill me and unctionize me and give me the power and the strength and the insight that I might accurately and rightfully divide the word of truth. Speak to each and every heart wherever people may be listening. May those who are lost find Jesus as Lord. May those who are saved more fully submit to him and love him more completely. So we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take God's word and turn to the book of Revelation. If you're new to the Bible, it is the last book in the Bible. Most folks know at least where that book is. Some of your Bibles uh, have across the top the Apocalypse, and that's a good title. It comes right from the text itself from the first verse. Apocalypsis, we just transliterate it. We take the sound of those words and bring it right into English, and it means the unveiling. This is not the revelation of John the Divine. This is not the revelation of John as a few King James translations render it. As most King James publishers put it, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not John's revelation. This is Jesus' revelation given to him from the Father, disseminated through an angel to the Apostle John, and we are reading it today as the seven churches did in the first century. And so we are looking at the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And there's an unveiling here, a disclosure that we could not otherwise know were it not for this book. And I love the book of Revelation. And may I tell you, Satan hates the book of Revelation. In fact, I am convinced there are two books that Satan hates more than any other. One is the book of Genesis. The other is the Revelation. And he hates Genesis because his doom is pronounced. And he hates Revelation because it is carried out. In fact, when you contrast the first book of the Bible and the last book of the Bible, you discover that God supernaturally constructed His Word, and the book of Revelation is like a golden clasp that holds the whole thing together. For instance, in the book of Genesis, you have the creation of the heaven and the earth. In the book of the Revelation, we will see a new creation of a new heaven and a new earth, and God won't take six days to do it. He'll do it in an instance of time. In Genesis, you find the first Adam reigning on the earth. In the Revelation, you find the last Adam reigning in glory. In the book of Genesis, God creates the night and the sea. In the book of Revelation, God eliminates the night and there are no more seas. In the Genesis, you find Adam being presented a bride. In the Revelation, God gives a bride to His Son, the church. In Genesis, you have the tree of life that God wanted Adam to participate from. In the Revelation, we will see again the tree of life that we will participate in. In the book of Genesis, you see sin entering into the world, and with that, sin comes a curse and death. When we come to the Revelation, God says there's no more curse and no more death. In Genesis, Satan appears for the first time. But in the Revelation, he will appear for the last time when God will forever contend, assign him to the lake of fire. So here we are, Revelation chapter 1. We want to pick up in verse 9 where we left off. Follow along with you as we read the Word of God. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, 
And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white wool, were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. If you're using your note-taking outline there in your bulletin, you can see that I've organized my thoughts around three simple themes. Beginning in verses 9 through 11, we want to examine what the Apostle John heard. What John heard. Now remember, God gave us a divine outline for the book of Revelation. It's found in the first chapter, the 19th verse. He tells John to write the things that he had seen. That's chapter 1, and we're going to study this marvelous, wonderful vision of Jesus and his glorified body. Then he tells him to write things about the present, the things that are, and he's going to do that in chapters 2 and 3 when he looks at seven churches. And then he tells him in Revelation 1.19 to write the things that will be, that will take place after these things. And that's Revelation 4 all the way through the end of the book. Now we read here in verse 9, I, John, your brother, and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the king, in kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now as John describes what he experiences, we get a glimpse of what he is like. God gives us a snapshot into this apostle's humility. Notice he describes himself, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation. He's basically saying, I am persevering with you in Jesus. And there's not one braggadocious bone in his entire body. He doesn't say, I, John, the author of the gospel of John, you know, that great gospel that tells all about our Lord's life and ministry. I, John, the one who wrote three New Testament letters. I, John, one of three that were closest to the Lord Jesus. I, John, who sat next to him in the upper room. I, John, you know, the only disciple to appear at the cross. I, John, the, the one to whom Jesus assigned his mother. He doesn't say, listen up, I'm John, the one Jesus called the beloved apostle. No, none of that. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the struggles of life. He doesn't call himself Father John, as some refer to him, but Brother John. We saw last time that God has made us to be a kingdom of priests, that each of us in the priesthood of the believer have direct access to God, that while God has leaders in his church, you don't have to go to some, through some clergyman to come to the living God. You are brothers with this great apostle. And I've noticed over the years that when people are captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ, people who are anticipating his return, they are not consumed with self. They are concerned with who he is and what he has done. And so that overshadows everything he writes. Your brother and fellow partaker, notice, in the tribulation. Some of your translations say sufferings, but the King James and New American Standard, I think, best capture it with this word tribulation. It's the Greek word thalipsis, and it refers not to what we generally call, you know, trials and tribulations, you know, our aches and our pains, our fears, our frustrations, our heartaches, our many disappointments. No, it's actually a technical word in the New Testament. It's a word that literally means pressure. And it is used to describe the pressure of an ungodly world upon God's people. Now, all tribulations, in one sense, are a kind of trial, but not all trials are tribulations. A tribulation 
is the pressure of an ungodly world. And so making it a trial is legitimate because it falls under that umbrella. And so James can say, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. But understand, this is not some difficulty you're facing this week. When he speaks of tribulation, he's speaking of severe or mild persecution, however it may express itself. Now, it seems rather awful that this beloved disciple, this great apostle who loved and followed Jesus with all his heart would find himself on an island in such trouble. You would think that if you're saved, as many TV personalities try to tell you, that if you just think better, you'll live better. But my friend, unless you're going to hell, this is not your best life now. The Bible is clear. It is out there in the future. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Thalipsis, same word, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So it's a technical term that refers to the suffering that comes from a godless world. Jesus said this in Mark 13. For those days will be a time of Thalipsis, tribulation. He's speaking of the tribulation, the persecution, even beheading, as we'll see in the Revelation, that will come upon tribulation saints, people who are alive, who come to faith during the tribulation. For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. Now, one of Satan's goals for the Antichrist in the Revelation is to destroy Israel and to slander and mock God's name and worth. And we will see that unless Jesus had not intervened, he would have wiped out virtually everyone. And so in Revelation 7 and verse 14, we read this. John wrote of those who had died and were now in heaven, and they're in heaven. We'll get a snapshot of what they're saying. These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation, Philipsis. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Likewise, Paul warns those Christians at Lystra, through many tribulations, same word, thalipsis, we must enter the kingdom of God. So the word tribulation, the net Bible renders it persecution, that's good, suffering, a little weaker, but it's all a part of the heartache that comes for following Jesus. I, John, your brother, fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance. Note those three words, I've underlined them there, and note the order. The experience of tribulation is part of the present. And sooner or later, if you love Jesus, you will experience tribulation. Why? Because indeed all, all, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So tribulation is in the present. It comes with walking with the Lord. The blessings of the kingdom, that's out there in the future. That's what we have to look forward to because this is not our best life now. The future blessing will come when Jesus comes back for his people. But in the interim, he is calling us to persevere, to live for him. And these three realities, perseverance, the coming kingdom, and tribulation, are all a part of the complete package that God has for his people. And when these people tell you otherwise, they are lying to you, and they are misrepresenting the word of God. Now, John says here in verse 9 that he was on the island called Patmos. Now, Patmos is a small, rocky, crescent-shaped kind of island in the Aegean Sea. It's on the southeast, uh, southwest coast off of Turkey. Here's a map. Uh, bring it up. You see that little dot out there called Patmos? Uh, it's actually technically a part of Greece. And of course, we've seen already in the Revelation that John refers to uh, this area where you see those seven marks. Those are the seven churches that he writes to. He calls it Asia. Not to be confused with the continent of Asia that we refer to today. In the first century, Asia was a province in the Roman Empire. And to distinguish it later on, they called it Asia Minor. But Patmos is this island off the coast of Asia. And it was a place where they typically sent political prisoners to do hard labor. It was an Alcatraz of sorts. It was a a devil's island. And if you live there as a Christian, you were not only cut off from your family, but for the most part, you were cut off from the saints of God. Now this, according to Josephus, was a place for nonviolent prisoners. And they were required to work in the quarries on that island. You can imagine John 
and physical labor during that day. And then at night he would come back. And, and one of the things that strikes you, and God blessed me to allow me to go to the Isle of Patmos and the cave where John wrote the Revelation. But one of the things that absolutely captures you is wherever you are on the island, there's just the Aegean Sea is all around you. And I can't help but think that God used that experience in John's life because habitually he is going to refer to the sea all the way through the Revelation. But notice, John is here on the island of Patmos because, here's the reason, don't miss it, because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The Roman authorities evidently believed that John's preaching was somewhat seditious. Maybe they thought, well, he preaches this guy, Yeshua, who claims himself to be a king, and we have only one king, but... Caesar. And so they thought, well, here's this religious fanatic. We warned this old coot over and over and over again to be quiet, but he just wouldn't listen. So we'll fix the problem ourselves and we'll put him out there on that island called Patmos. We'll cook his goose there. And so they put him on Patmos. And so he calls himself your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation. Listen, if you stand up for Jesus, if you speak for Jesus, not just witness with your life, he that witnesses only with his life witnesses only to himself. God has called you not only to witness with your life, but with your words. If you speak up for Jesus, if you refuse to call right, wrong, and wrong, right, sooner or later, there's going to be some people who will oppose you. And they're just going to call you some narrow-minded person who's crawled out from underneath a rock. Someone challenged me this week, where do you get all this stuff about transgenderism not being a reality? Right out of the book of the Genesis. In the beginning, he created them male and female, period. There is no such thing as transgenderism in the mind of God Almighty. You can call it whatever you want. You can call gay marriage marriage, but it's not marriage. There's only one kind of marriage that God recognizes. It doesn't matter if the highest court in the land calls it marriage. You can call it whatever you want, but it's not a marriage. And you start speaking the truth, and they're going to call you some narrow-minded fun, fundamentalist. Fun, no fun, too much damn, and not enough mental. That's what they'll accuse you of. And that's what they did to the Apostle John. He stood up for Jesus. It was his testimony and his preaching of the Word of God. And here I am this morning. I'm on an island, Port Royal Island, and I'm ministering to the people of Community Bible Church. All right, here it is. He warns in his farewell discourse, in the world, you will, you will, you will have philipsis, tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. And so God gives his power to us as we make ourselves available. Now, maybe you're not on some barren island this morning, but banished from your friends. I go to some parts of the world where families have literally disowned their loved ones. And when I ministered on the campus at Duke University and God privileged me to lead a number of young Jewish men and women to Christ, some of those were literally disowned by their family and their family had a funeral for them. But let me just say, God will give you another family. This apostle refers to the saints he's writing. He calls himself your brother. Do you remember that occasion when Peter said, Behold, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. I can go almost anywhere in the world, and if I meet God's people, I have a house to stay. I have brothers and sisters, I have family, and so do you. And so here he is on the Isle of Patmos. Seems like a waste, but nothing is ever wasted in God's economy. It's a bleak, lonely, barren island, but it is at this place that God gives him the book that we are studying. And it's in many ways one of the most important books in all of the Bible because it helps us to see how God will end time as we know it. God gives John the Apostle a glimpse of the judgments that are going to come, but also a picture of glory that is in front of us. And it's very often in the midst of our heartache 
that God gives some of his best ministry. So on the human level, he's on Patmos. But notice here in verse 10, on a spiritual level, he's in the spirit. He's in the university of Christian suffering on the island physically, but he is in the spirit. I was in the spirit. On the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. It all happened on Sunday, the Lord's day. Now, some commentators assume that this is the day of the Lord, because the day of the Lord begins with the great tribulation period, and it's not a single day. It's like, you know, we refer to the day of your youth. We don't say that you were a youth for one day, but that period of time, well, it's an expression in the Bible that has a bright side to it. You read one text and say, oh, that's a glorious day. Another day, oh, that's an awful day. It mimics a biblical day that starts in shadow, gets dark, and goes through the sunlight, and so a Jewish Sabbath begins on the evening and it ends the next day. And so the day of the Lord. I believe we're in the shadows of the day of the Lord, but when the church is taken out, it's going to get very, very dark. But then Jesus will come back and it will be a bright, glorious day for a thousand years. But at the end of the thousand years, it will get dark again. And then when that day, that time frame is over, we will go into the eternal state. So they assume he is writing about the day of the Lord, but he's not. The construction is different here. It's the Lord's day. It's the same construction when we speak of the Lord's table. It's an adjective, and it's Sunday, and it's not by accident that it was on this day that God gave him the revelation. The early church met on Sunday, not Saturday. Now look, I believe all Ten Commandments have full application, full significance today, though the application may change. Take the Fifth Commandment. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you might live long in the land, Moses wrote to the Jewish people. Paul takes the same command in the New Testament, quotes it in Ephesians 6, not that you may live long on the land, but you might live long on the earth. Because now God's people are not localized, for the most part, to a land called Israel, but they are across the planet wherever you go. Same commandment, broader application. There is still one day in seven that God's people are to honor. But now we honor the first day of the week in honor of the resurrected Christ. Ignatius, 15 years after John gives us the revelation, writes this. The Christians cease to keep the Jewish Sabbath and live by the Lord's day on which our life shines thanks to him. Pliny, the unbelieving Roman governor, wrote these words in 110 AD. The Christians gather on Sunday, the first day of the week, to sing praises to their Lord Jesus. Justin Martyr, a great church leader, 45 years later in 150 AD, wrote, We all hold this common gathering on Sunday, since it is the day when Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead. So when you hear all these conspiracists and these Seventh-day Adventists, I love them, but they're just wrong, and they come up with this stuff that the uh, Roman Catholic Church invented that we meet on Sunday, or Constantine invented that we meet on the first day of the week. They know nothing of history, and they know very little of their Bible. Not only do we have the picture of history hundreds of years before Constantine ever came, but we have the authority of the Word of God. We gather on Sunday and not Saturday, and it's not by accident that Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. It is not by accident that the first appearances he makes are on the first day of the week. It is not by accident that eight days later, bringing you back to the next Sunday, that he once again appears on the first day of the week. It is not by accident that 50 days later, and there should be a slide for this somewhere, come on, 50 days later, that um, the church is born on the day of Pentecost. It's born on a Sunday. In 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Paul said on your gathering on the first day of the week, that's when you bring your offering because that's when God's people worship. In Acts 20 and verse 7, they broke bread, they celebrated the Lord's table when on the first day of the week. So this is the Lord's day. Again, it's an adjective. You could render it the Lordian day. 
This is the first day of the week. This is Sunday when John is in the Spirit and God gives him this mighty, gigantic blessing. By the way, I hope that you are in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I hope you're Spirit-filled when you come here on a Sunday morning, that you're here to worship in spirit and in truth. And I know a lot of Christians just blow off Sunday. Some of you are watching me live stream in other countries, and I thank God for the technology. And I thank God for others on time zones that are planning to go to church later on, or maybe you've been. But some of our own people are at home in their Bacher lounger with their iced tea watching me, not because they're sick or unable to be here, not because they have sick kids, but because they chose to do it from the home. Listen, that's not God's way. That's not God's plan. You should be here on the Lord's Day gathering with God's people. Sunday has become a fun day in America. When I first came as your pastor, there were no soccer meets or gymnastic meets 25 years ago in Beaufort County, but within three or four years, they started doing it. You know, a Christian parent has a choice. When their child is in some baseball game Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, they should say to that child, we're not going because we're going to be with God's people. It takes a dad, it takes a man with some spiritual steel in his spine that helps his children to know what are important. And so he was in the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, maybe he had a trance like Peter did up on that rooftop on Simon the Tanner's house there in Joppa where he saw the sky open up and this magnificent sheet come down and God gave him that wonderful vision. Perhaps he experienced what the Apostle Paul had where he was caught up, he said, in the third heaven. And he said it was so real. I don't know if I was literally physically there in heaven or if it was just a a vision. That's how real it was. Or maybe he's doing, I hope, what you're doing. He was just worshiping in spirit and in truth as Jesus instructed us to. And it was in that context that God gave him the vision. However it happened, it happened on the Lord's Day when he was in the Spirit. And by the way, this verse and many like it are a good reminder of the balance between the physical and the spiritual realm. He's on the island of Patmos. That's where he is physically. But he's there in the Spirit. When Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, who are at Colossae, or Colossae if you prefer. The Apostle Paul is writing to believers who live in the city of Colossae physically, while spiritually they are said to be in Christ. One speaks of their physical environment, the other word speaks of their spiritual environment. And it's important that we keep that balance of one not to the exclusion of the other. To be taken so much up with being in Christ, with our heavenly environment, you can ignore your earthly home and responsibilities. And so the saying is well taken. Some are so heavenly minded, they are no earthly good. And so they are so heavenly minded, they're here for the revelation, but they're a next door neighbor who's lost. They've never even given a thought to witness to that person, though they've lived there for 25 years. You are to have a balance between the physical and the spiritual. And if you're just so earthly minded and you don't keep your focus on the things above, you'll just become consumed with the material and the here and now and all your silly little hobbies to the exclusion of making an impact for Jesus Christ. So here's John in the spirit and he heard something behind him that he describes like a loud voice, like a trumpet. Look at verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. It's clear and it's striking. And the sound behind him, we were just introduced to him last week in verse 8, the Alpha and the Omega. But lest there be any doubt when we come to verse 17, he describes himself as the first and the last. And when we come to the end of the Revelation in the 22nd chapter, he will use the same terms to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's interesting because the phrase the first and the last was a phrase that was used in the Old Testament to describe Yahweh. In Isaiah 44, 6, thus says The Lord, notice all caps in the English text, meaning this is the word for Yahweh, not Elohim, or it's the word Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. 
and then the title, the Alpha and the Omega, along with the first and the last, are both brought together in verse 17. The point is, is that this is none other that we're studying this morning than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, as we've already seen last time, and in a number of times all the way through this chapter, is giving the same expressions that are used of the Father. Why? Because to see the Son is to see the Father. They are equal in person. And so like a loud, authoritative trumpet that calls people to action, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And then the words and the command in verse 11 are unmistakable. Notice, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, these are seven actual literal churches. These are not epics of church history. These are real churches. Here they are on a map. And you will see them in a horseshoe kind of configuration. And God willing, if Jesus doesn't come back first, we will go through all seven churches. We'll start down there in the left corner. We'll go up north, and then we'll come back to the southeast. Seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, I planted in your mind a few weeks ago, why seven? Why not ten? Why not twenty? Why not a hundred? Why seven? Why not two? Why not three? And why these seven? Why not the church at Rome? Why not the church in Jerusalem? Why not that great missionary church, the church at Antioch? Why these seven? Well, among other things, and we will study it, seven is a number of completion and perfection. But why these seven? Well, hold on to your seat. We'll come to that in the second chapter, all right? Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. That's the command. This isn't John's idea. John didn't write this book to give some encouragement to the persecuted Christians where he said, you know, I see a need. I, Lord, I'd like to write this book. And, and God says, go ahead, write a book to those seven churches. They need your encouragement. No, it didn't happen that way. John had no choice in the matter. He has this vision of the glorified Christ and from the Father to the Son to an angel, an angel maybe like Gabriel who gave a vision to Daniel that we studied, to John, to the seven churches, and in essence to us today, we are reading it. But this was Jesus' idea. This was his thought. And so we saw those five stages of pure transmission of this message. It was communicated to John by God to these seven churches and what an encouragement it will be to them and what an encouragement will be to us because seven times over in the second and third chapter, he says, he that has an ear to hear, listen to what he says to the churches. This is not just written to Ephesus or Thyatira or Sardis or something. It's written to the people of Community Bible Church as well, and we would be wise to hear. So that's what John heard. Secondly, we need to consider what John saw, what he saw, beginning now in verse 12. This is a difficult section, so strap on your pew belt and hold on, all right? Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, seven churches that are spoken of here figuratively as seven lampstands. By the way, this is a good illustration of what I mentioned earlier, that the Bible is full of symbolism. But suppose that's just as far as we read. Someone might read that and say, well, I believe the seven golden lampstands represent the Roman Empire. Somebody else might say, well, I believe the Seven lampstands are analogous to the seven-headed beast in the book of Revelation chapter 13. Or someone else might say, well, I, I believe the seven lampstands stand for the, for the devil. And the seven lampstands, or somebody else might say, stands for an atomic bomb. And you go on and on and on. And there's some wacko stuff you can read about the book of Revelation. But remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And one of the reasons people have such difficulty with Revelation, one of the reasons it's virtually not even taught anymore, is because people no longer know their Old Testament. 
And so we saw there are 300 allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Some would say 600, 700, 800. Well, if you want to double count a number of texts, but there are 300 allusions. That's 74% of the 404 verses found in the Revelation. But understand, a lot of Revelation interprets itself. If we just kept reading, you come to verse 20, look down there, it says, the seven lampstands are what? The seven churches. So we don't have to guess what the meaning of these seven lampstands are. We know what they stand for. And so when we interpret the symbol, we literally believe it. And notice that they are seven golden lampstands. That expresses their value. Because God's church was not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood of a lamb as unblemished, spotless, the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the metaphor here of a lampstand, really as we will see in the second and third chapter, speaks of the church's testimony. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And we are to bear that light. We're not the light, we're the light bearers. That's what a lampstand does. It bears the light. Jesus said, let men see your good works that you might glorify your Father who's in heaven. In 1 Timothy 3, the Apostle Paul said that the local church is the pillar and support of the truth. We bear the truth. That's what we are to do as lampstands. Like the moon, the moon doesn't have its own light. It reflects the light of the sun. And we are borrowed light, as it were. But we are to reflect the truth. That's going to be one of the key themes hammered in the seven churches. Jesus will warn that if we do not do that, he will snap our lampstand away. He'll take away the testimony of a church. I hope that never happens to Community Bible Church, but we're going to see when we come to the seven churches, there is application on four levels, not only a corporate level, but one of the levels is individual. God can take your lampstand away. Stop using you by decisions that you make. So with a loud voice, he sees these seven golden lampstands. Notice, and in the middle of the lampstands, verse 13, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching down to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Praise God, John sees Jesus, and he sees him standing in the middle of the churches. And I am glad that that's where he stands. On the one hand, he is the omnipresent God. On the other hand, he is still in his human body. So he can be omnipresent and localized. And I know because the scripture says it that this morning he is here for wherever two or more are gathered in my name. He said, I am right there in their midst. And so in one sense, he's everywhere. In another sense, he is right here as we gather this morning in his name. Now people tell me, well, you know, I don't go to church. I can, I can worship at home or I can worship out on the golf course on Sunday morning or I can worship out there in my boat. You know, get close to God. Well, I suppose you can worship anywhere. You can crawl in your closet this week and worship the living God. But that is no substitute for gathering on the Lord's day. You say, I can't find a healthy church. Then get into the best church you can or get some other like-minded people and start one. But don't live in disobedience and forsake your assembling together on the Lord's day. God's people are to get together on Sunday. And we're told here in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man clothed in a robe. You see that phrase, Son of Man. That's an important designation. It's one of the terms we studied, if you remember, in the book of Daniel. It's one of the terms that describes the Messiah. Remember in Daniel 7, we saw the Ancient of Days in that marvelous vision in Daniel 7. This is why I said Daniel is really important. Some of you are new to the church. Go back. It's all online. There's a brother right there. He's listening to the whole book of Daniel. He's only been saved less than a month and he's listening to the whole book of Daniel already. Praise God for that. Some of you would go home and Turn off that boob tube and plug in, search the Scriptures app and start listening to the book of Daniel. It will open up the revelation to you. But if you remember, the Ancient of Days, God the Father, comes up to the Son of Man and He gives Him a marvelous kingdom. Three key terms in the Bible. Son of Man, Son of God, Son of David. Son of God emphasizes his deity. Son of David emphasizes that he is a king, that he will literally sit on David's throne, just as the angel Gabriel told Mary in Luke 1. 
And he is the Son of Man, which is used to emphasize his humanity, especially in his suffering. 81 times in the gospel, the term Son of Man is used. It's Christ's favorite description of himself. In Isaiah 9 and verse 6, all three of them prophetically were brought together. Remember, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. That's his humanity. That's his title, Son of Man. And the government will rest on his shoulders. That speaks of his royalty. That speaks of his kingship. That's him as son of David. That is yet to be fulfilled. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That speaks of his deity. A baby is coming. And it's no ordinary baby. The baby's name is going to be called Mighty God because he is the Son of God. He is God in human flesh. And so to say any of those titles was to say all three of those titles. If you said to a Jew today who's orthodox and knows his Bible, he understands that the terms are used interchangeably. Remember on that occasion when Caiaphas put the Lord Jesus under oath and he said, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And so when asked if he was the Son of God, Jesus responds by saying he's the Son of Man. Notice, he quotes Daniel chapter 7 in the text. You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man, that's Daniel seven thirteen, sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas understood when he said he was the Son of Man, he was claiming to be the Son of God, and so what did he do? He tore his robes, and he said, you blasphemed. So for 2,000 years, people have wondered what Jesus looks like. You see the medieval art, and he's rather a glum, gloody, gloomy, grim person with a usually a dinner plate behind his head, and, and uh, you know, they've got pictures of him either in a cradle or on a cross or, you know, all kinds of pictures. And more recently, you know, you see pictures of Jesus. He's that happy-go-lucky athletic kind. Actually, there's only one description of him in the Old Testament in his earthly life. Isaiah said, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. That doesn't mean he was ugly or anything like that. It just means, just means that there was nothing outwardly that would have drawn people to him and say, I want to follow you. But here's John, and he gives us a picture of the Lord Jesus, not walking in the dusty streets of Jerusalem. And for some of us, that's the only picture we have of him. But God wants to lift up your vision. And he wants to give you a picture of his son now in heaven. And he does that metaphorically by the way he dresses his son. And we will see these like and as phrases all the way through. These uh, similes. And when you understand what the symbol means, then you literally believe what is said. Notice verse 13. I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching down to the feet. This description of his robe and his sash speak of his superiority and of his care. Now, the word that is used here for robe is the Greek word podere. And outside of the Bible, it was the kind of robe that only a king could wear. Inside of the Bible, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which most Jews read in the first century because they lost their ability to speak Hebrew, called the Septuagint, LXX in your margin. And the Septuagint, the word pote, ray, was used of the robe the high priest would wear. And notice, in addition, he wore a golden sash. And that's exactly, by the way, what the high priest wore. He was clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. He is underscoring that Jesus is our great high priest. That he has not forgotten these believers and these seven churches and the churches today, another awful persecution this past week just seems never to end. God has not forgotten his people. He is interceding. He is the high priest who is able to save forever, Hebrews 7 says, those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
He is our great high priest, one who can sympathize with our weaknesses, one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And so when you think of Jesus, John will display him in three offices, prophet, priest, and king. He is our priest who forever lives to make intercession for us. He is the prophet. He will speak with absolute authority and someday he will come and reign as king of kings and lord of lords. But here his, his robe speaks of his superiority and his care for you. In addition, I want you to see his head and his hair. It speaks of his eternality and his purity, his holiness. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His head and his hair were white like snow, remember? In Daniel 7.14, the one who had that designation of himself, it was the Ancient of Days. It was God the Father. His white hair suggesting his eternality, his glory. And here it is used of the Son of Man because the Son of Man is the Father's equal. And the word for white is the word lukos. It means a bright, glorious, shining light. And here it is used as it is all the way through the Revelation. We will find ourselves in white robes someday to speak of the holiness that God will give to you, that He imputes to your account, that you will realize in a glorified body fully, but that Jesus has because it's part of His makeup. His head is like white snow. That speaks of His eternality with no beginning or end, but it also speaks of His purity. Uh, the prophet said, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be red like wool. King David in Psalm 51, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So when you see terms like white as snow, like pure will, you are speaking of absolute purity, and that is who the Son of God is. Notice the third aspect of his character is seen in his dress. His eyes, which speak of his insight in his discernment. Hang on, his eyes were like a flame of fire. When he looks, he looks with discernment. And we will see these expressions all the way in chapter 1, then taken out of chapter 1 and applied to the seven churches. And when God uses this expression in the second chapter, we're going to see that the Son of Man who is walking through a particular local church will see right through them. Now, you may think that you have some kind of barrier over your heart today, but there's a window on your heart, and it's not stained glass, and God can see right through, and He can see all of your motives and all of your thoughts and what's going on in your head right now with His divine x-ray vision. You can hide from your mate what you've done. You can hide from your pastor, but none of us can hide from Almighty God. And if He were to walk up and down these aisles as He will walk through one of the churches... What would he see this morning? He looks at our motives. He looks at our plans. He looks at our desires. And so it's not by accident that the same designation given of the Father with his eyes is now given here of the Son. Ah, oh, but there's another piece of clothing I don't want you to miss. Notice his feet and how they are described. It speaks of his strength and of his judgment. We read now in verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, and it was made to glow in a furnace. His feet were like burnished bronze that has been made to glow in a furnace. That speaks of his strength and his durability. And what a contrast with what we studied in Daniel 2, where we saw that magnificent statue that represents all of the great empires of the world. But the statue has feet of clay mixed with iron. And when that final stone comes and hits the statue, if you remember, it turned it into dust and it was blown away by the wind. But not so with the Lord Jesus. His feet are like bronished, uh, burnished bronze. Another simile here. That is, it's like bronze that has been tested and strengthened with fire, with all the impurities removed. Absolute strength. And like a king, people would sit under the feet of a king. And so we have that expression, the feet of kings. But here are the red hot 
feet of Yeshua, the reigning Savior of the world. And if you know your Scripture, and we'll study it later in the Revelation, bronze is a symbol for judgment in Scripture. Remember in Numbers chapter 21, when the children of Israel rebelled against God and God sent those fiery snakes through the congregation and people began to drop like flies and die all around and, and God told Moses to make a serpent out of bronze and set it high on a pole. And so the, the, the snake was a, a reminder of the sin and the bronze was a reminder of judgments. And of course, even in the temple, even in the tabernacle, there was an altar called the brazen altar where the animal sacrifice to express his God's hatred and judgment towards sin was seen. And so God said, I want you to make a snake, Moses, and I want you to set it high on a pole. Because Jesus Christ becomes that bronze snake. Remember what he told Nicodemus when he said you must be born twice to go to heaven? And Nicodemus says, I don't get it. How does it happen? And finally Jesus speaks to a man who knew the scriptures and he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. Remember they held that bronze serpent up. It seemed rather foolish to the natural mind. God said, you look at that bronze servant and you will instantly be healed. And I'm sure people thought that's folly. Give me some medicine. Give me something I can do. No, God says, look and live. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life, He's lifted up as that bronze snake on a cross. And then the most quoted verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. So His eyes are like a flame of fire, and His feet like burnished bronze. Here comes the judge with all of His discernment and all of His insight, and none will be able to escape. Fifth, Verse 15, his voice, it speaks of his divine authority and power. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. One day when Jesus speaks, all the world will listen. His voice was the sound of many waters. I thought when I read this again this week, I thought, well, here he is on the Isle of Patmos. Maybe, maybe he's in a storm and he hears those raging waters of the Aegean. You go back to Genesis 1 and you see the authority of God's voice. He speaks and it happens. And when you come to John's prologue in his gospel, John chapter 1, the Son of God speaks and it happens and all things are created through him and by him. And there is coming a day, though this world may try to mute his words, though this world may try to mock his words, there is coming a day when they will hear his word like the sound of many waters. When I was a little boy, eight years old, my dad brought us and eight children in the family to the Niagara Falls. And we got in that little boat, I forgot what they call the Maid of the Mist or something, and it, it brought you real close to the falls. In fact, I think they brought you closer back then than they would today for legal purposes. But I'm telling you, the noise was absolutely deafening. And you could shout and scream but the falls, the sound of mighty waters overshadowed anything you could say. My friend, there is coming a day when Jesus will speak, some to a resurrection of life, some to a resurrection of judgment. And when they meet him, Romans 3.19 says, every mouth will be shut. They will be absolutely speechless before the authoritative Son of God. Number six, his right hand speaks of his protection and his preservation. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now this verse tells me that he's holding the seven stars, which verse 20 tells me are the seven angels, which chapters two and three will tell me are the seven messengers, the seven pastors. He's not talking, as we will see, as I hope to prove to you next time, of heavenly angels, but of pastor angels. We'll come to that. But here he defines the seven stars as the seven angels that includes in the designation the seven churches. And the church is in his right protective hand. God uses that description in Isaiah 41, 13. I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Most people are right-handed, and so it is the hand of strength, and so God uses that imagery of himself, that he is holding us with his powerful right hand, Jesus said to those who tried to trick him on one occasion. The Lord 
said to my Lord, this dialogue within the Trinity, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So being at the right hand is being in the place of authority. And Jesus is holding his churches and his pastors, thank God, in his right hand. And it's a protective hand. No one can snatch you out of his hand. I love that phrase in John 10. I give, we don't earn it, eternal life to them and they shall never perish. No one shall take them out of my hand. My Father who has given them me to you is greater than all and no one shall snatch you out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. These Christians who have misread their Bibles, who have been sloppy and careless, saying you can lose your salvation, are so far from the truth. Listen, you don't hold on to God. God holds on to you with his protective right hand. Seventh, and finally, his head that describes his indestructibility and his magnificent glory. We read now in this verse, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And so he describes Christ's head, both his mouth and his face. First, we are told that out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. You know what the two-edged sword is, right? Hebrews 4 verse 12, put it in a margin. It is the Word of God. It pictures the indestructibility of God's Word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my Word will never pass away. The grass fades, the flower falls off, but the Word of God stands forever. And you imagine these Christians hearing this with Emperor Domitian who is in charge. Domitian thought that his word was the final word, that he was an authority. And God wants to encourage these seven churches and by extension us that his word is the final authority. And so in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes back on that white horse, he will have the sharp two-edged sword protruding from his mouth. Now remember... That's not a literal sword coming out of his mouth. Remember, this book was communicated, Revelation 1.1. It was signified, signified, S-I-G-N, the first word, four letters of signified. It was signified through symbols. So you understand what the symbol means, and then you literally believe it. And so there is coming a day when Jesus will speak by his own word. He will destroy his enemies. He will even destroy the Antichrist and the devil and the false prophet and assign them with all lost people to the lake of fire. And that sword is your sword today, and I hope it is in your lap. I hope you bring it to church with you on Sunday. You need to. You'll get a lot more out of any sermon. You don't need an electronic Bible. You need one maybe at home, but not here. You're not going to learn your way around the Bible in an electronic Bible. Look, I had one of the first one. I was a tester for Logos in 1985. The first major Bible program. And I can tell you as a pastor, you will never learn your way around. Let's see, plug in a Genesis 2, Galatians 5. You won't know your, where your books are. And then when it comes to trying to minister to people, you are going to be at a loss. Don't tell me otherwise. Don't come up after. I get the letters. I'm not interested, all right? Here's the thing. His word is authoritative. And the apex of the vision comes in verse 16. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Remember Saul of Tarsus? And he met Jesus on that Damascus road. And he told King Agrippa, there was a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Remember the prophet Malachi? He describes the return of the Messiah from heaven as the sun, the S-U-N of righteousness, coming back with healing in his wings. There, the transfiguration, there's just a glimpse of Christ in his brilliance. But here in heaven, there's no light needed because the Bible says Christ will illuminate heaven. And the Gospels, we have his suffering. We have his sorrows. And the Gospels, we have the Lamb of God, but here in this great revelation, we have the Lion of the tribe of Judah who is sovereign, who will someday speak His word and it will be done. Now, that's what He heard. That's what He saw quickly. What did He do? Verse 17. What John did. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet like a dead man. And He placed His right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Now, this is a brilliant, majestic, glorious, yet terrifying picture 
of Jesus in heaven. I fell at his feet like a dead man. This is no root out of the dry ground. This is no corpse on a cross. This is the resurrected Lord. And when John sees him, he passes out. He's not dead. He's like a dead man. And Jesus, with that comforting right hand, said, Do not be afraid. Someone said it's better to be dead at the feet of Jesus than to be alive anywhere else. And I know that's true. But here he comes and he says what he told those disciples that night when they were in that storm and they were terrified and they think a ghost is coming to them. And he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now remember, this is John the Apostle. I demonstrated in the opening sermon that he was a half-cousin of Jesus. I don't know if they grew up together as little boys or if Jesus had him like a little nephew, but they had a special affinity for one another. And so he's the beloved disciple. And there's a close relationship, and it's not effeminate when John in that upper room has his head on his breast. But I want to tell you, his head is not on his breast. He is at his feet. He falls down like a dead man because he's not meeting him as the lamb. He is meeting him as the resurrected Lord. When those thousand plus men came to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus just spoke a word and all thousand fell backwards. And they recognized that this was no ordinary carpenter from Nazareth. And so they yielded to his command not to touch the others, that they would only take him. Here's John and he sees him in his brilliance. And my friend, when you see him in his brilliance, you won't strut into heaven and say, oh, here's my buddy Jesus. My friend, you'll have the response that Isaiah had, where he, he just is absolutely astounded with the brilliance and the holiness and the glory of God. In Revelation chapter 6, when you have the uh, lost people of this earth crying out in Revelation 6, 17, they will ask a rhetorical question, who is able to stand before the wrath of the Lamb? And the implied answer is absolutely no one. And so here's John and he loses it all and he falls down like a dead man. But then we read, this is not the end. He says, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. When he says, I am the first and the last, he is affirming again what he has already said in chapter 1, that like the Father, he was before anything else. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. He is the living one. He is the resurrected one. I am alive, he says, forevermore. Forevermore describes his indestructibility in his resurrection body and someday we will share a body like he has, the Bible says. Charles Wesley says, alive in him, my living head, that great hymn, because we are identified with Jesus. When you are born again, we studied on Wednesday nights that we are baptized in the Spirit. At the moment of conversion, you are identified with the Lord Jesus. You are alive in him. Now, notice the words here. He speaks here of death, and he speaks of Hades. Death has the body, Hades has the soul, but Jesus has the keys over both. Listen, it may be terrifying to some to think that they're going to take their loved ones and plant them in the ground. And it is a terrifying thing if you don't know Jesus. I have people tell me all the time, I don't want to be buried in a casket. I want to be cremated. I say, what's your problem? I'm a claustrophobic, they tell me. Oh, really? I don't think it matters at that point. Not to mention the biblical pattern is not cremation, it's burial. When you plant the body in the ground, so to speak, you are saying in faith like a dead seed that's put in the ground that will sprout a flower, that you are affirming the resurrection. Lay that aside. That's another sermon. The gates of Hades, Jesus said, shall not prevail against my church. And that was an important word because Domitian thought he was in charge. Nero, they thought they were in charge. They thought their word was final. And so Jesus will say on one occasion, do not fear. Though those who kill the body and are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him, God, who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Look, Nero did some horrific things. And Domitian, who is reigning on the throne when John writes this book in 95 AD, he too is a wicked man, but 
Both of those men had wicked, awful, terrible deaths, as history records. And the worst death is the second death, the eternal death. And Jesus says to these churches, I have the keys to death into Hades. And so with great encouragement, he's saying, I have authority over the rulers who are persecuting you. They can't lock you out of heaven and they can't lock you in the grave. I am the one who lives forevermore. This is no corpse on a cross. This is no dry root out of the ground. This is the majestic, magnificent, resurrected Savior that someday every knee will bow and confess that He is Lord. You can still meet Him as Savior, but a day will come when your opportunity is gone. And if you do not meet Him as Savior, then you will only meet Him in the end as judge. Now, Father, thank You for this marvelous Sunday You gave the Apostle John. That because of the experience he had on that Lord's Day, you gave him these 22 chapters in the Revelation that we, by your grace and mercy, will study. But help us as we read this book and study the magnificent unveiling of the Lord Jesus for us to fall more in love with him, to follow him more closely to have a reverence and an awe and a holy fear for Him as your Bible says is the beginning of wisdom. I pray for those who are in the sound of my voice, some who are uncertain that heaven is their home. They'd like to go, but they don't know. And they don't know because they're not sure they're good enough. Help them to see, Father, that they are not good enough and never can be. That only Jesus can impute righteousness to them. Help them to realize that he didn't pay for some or most of their sin, but all of it on a cross. That whoever will call upon the living Christ will be saved. Help us this week not to be ashamed of the message. Help us as we go to make disciples to care for the souls of men and women and boys and girls. Help us to get off our high intellectual hobby horses and to get down in the trenches and to begin to live for Christ and to share the good news with those who will listen. And help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have called us. That when we see our Savior in glory, he will indeed say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. We ask it, our Father, in Jesus' name and for his honor. Amen.